Let's pray. Father, we do pray that as we look now at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that you help us to understand rightly what it's saying and rightly how we should apply it to our lives. And then please work in us by your spirit so that we are different because of Jesus. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I do want to say thanks very much to TJ for giving us that insight into doing business in an Asian context. And what, what strikes me in, in conversation with TJ over the last couple of years, it's really struck me, and that's why I wanted you to hear it from his lips, it, it's the wide variety of temptations that are there in business. It's not just about um, being greedy or working too hard or telling lies or something like that. It's business in, in an Asian context, and as TJ says, Probably not just in an Asian context, it involves far more than that. It involves dishonesty and bribery as well as temptation around um, gluttony and food and and, and drinking too much and and, and sexual temptations as well, all tied up with business. As we'll see today, that is quite similar to what business life was like in Corinth in the first century. There was a wide variety of temptation. Now, so far in Paul's letter, in his letter to the Corinthians, we've been, he's been dealing with um, some things that were reported to him. So do you remember some people from the household of, of a lady called Chloe? They had come to Paul. Uh, they probably came with a letter from the Corinthians, but they'd also come with some reports about what was happening. So they reported about some divisions that were happening in the church. That was the first few chapters. They also reported about a particular case of sexual immorality, which we dealt with last week. But we'll see today that there were some other things that uh, were reported to Paul about uh, things that the church was doing and saying, things that Paul felt he needed to address. And the first thing that Paul deals with is some disputes that were happening in the church. Uh, Some people in the church were having disputes about money, about business, and they were taking each other to court over them. Now, in Corinth in those days, there were two kinds of courts. Uh, There were the criminal courts of the Roman government. They were apparently quite fair and just. But there were also local civil magistrates' courts. And these local courts were far more open to abuse. You were, you were more likely to get a result if you were wealthy or influential. Like they weren't terribly just, these courts. But in the church, in Corinth, people were taking their disputes with each other to these local courts. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 1. Have a look with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with another... Dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints, Christians? Paul says it's all wrong. He says the church should keep their disputes in-house, that they should sort things out between themselves. After all, Paul says, we're going to be the judges of the whole world. Now, when Paul says that, I don't think he means that you or I will individually sit in judgment over the world. I I think it's, it's got to do with our union with Jesus. So through Jesus, in our union with him, we will judge the world. One commentator puts it this way. No Christian will judge the world as an independent individual, but as one of the corporeity who bears Christ's image and shares Christ's destiny and likeness as raised with him. So so it's in Jesus that God's people will judge the whole world and even angels. Surely then... We should be able to sort out money or business matters between ourselves. Verse 2. Do you not know that the saints, Christians, will judge the world? And if you're to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? 
So Paul says what to do. He says, if you have a, if you have a dispute in the church, get someone in the church to sort it out for you. Paul says, look, any ordinary Christian should be able to do it. I think he's being a little bit ironic there. Probably better to choose someone who knows what they're talking about, who's got some wisdom and maturity. But, but Paul says, fix it up within the church. Don't air your dirty laundry in front of the world. I mean, what is the world going to think of the church? Here, here we say, oh, we've been reconciled to God through Jesus and we've been reconciled to each other through Jesus. We're one family in Christ. But the moment we start talking about money or business, we sue each other and go straight to your courts. It's crazy. Verse 4. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. Paul says you should be able to get someone to help you from within the church. But then he goes on and he says... It shouldn't even get to that. Uh, The very fact that you're having these disputes with each other in the first place is a complete failure. It means that you're cheating each other and ripping each other off. Uh, It it shows your greed. It shows your sin. You shouldn't be ripping each other off in the first place. You should be honest in your business dealings. And he says even if you are ripped off, well, the best thing you can do is just wear it. You're better off being wronged than insisting on your rights, getting into fights in front of the world. Verse 7. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong and you do this to your brothers. The very fact that these Corinthians are having these disputes shows their failure. It shows that they are still stuck in wicked ways. Wicked ways of swindling and greedy business practices. Wicked ways of of getting ahead like the world. Paul says, as Christians, that should all be behind us. He says, there is no place in God's kingdom for wicked people. Paul says, that's what you used to be like before you knew Jesus, but Jesus should make you different. Jesus has washed you clean from sin. Jesus has pardoned you and given you right standing with God. Jesus has sanctified you, set you apart as God's holy person. It's time to put wickedness behind you. Verse 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, you might have noticed as I read out that little list there that there was far more than just business stuff, wasn't there? I mean, before Paul gets to thieves and the greedy and swindlers and so on, he, he talks about a whole heap of other sins as well. You've got, what have you got there? You've got drunkenness and um, homosexual offences and, and uh, sexual immorality and idolatry. Now, that may seem strange to some of our ears. Why is all that mixed in there? Well, it wasn't strange in that culture. 
because like we just heard from TJ in an Asian business context, all this stuff was there in Corinthian business as well. Uh, back in those days, uh, back in those days, if you want to be part of a trade, if you wanted to have um, uh, some kind of a business, you, you had to be part of what was called a guild, something like a trade union or something like that. And the guilds were always associated with idols and idol temples. So, for example, uh, imagine there's the local IT guild. I, I don't think they had IT in those days, but just imagine with me. Uh, the IT guild is associated with the temple of Dionysus. So, you want to go to any IT meeting, you have to go to the temple of Dionysus. That's where they have all their meetings. And as part of their meetings, they will share a meal together. A meal uh, made up of food sacrificed to idols. That's why it's going to be a very big issue that Paul's going to deal with in chapters 8, 9 and 10. Uh, at this meal, they will also drink copious amounts of alcohol. And they will sleep with the temple prostitutes, both male and female. Sexual sin, idolatry, drunkenness, it's closely associated with business in Corinth. In fact, if you want to get ahead in business, if you want to make some money and make a name for yourself, it is the, that's the only way to do it. Unless you go to the temple, the temple is where you make your relational connections, the temple is where you meet with mentors. The temple is, is how you get clients. The temple is how you get a name. The temple is where you do your professional development courses. It all revolves around the idol temples. Anyway, now that uh, Paul has raised issues of sexual immorality, he goes on to address them. Now, what he does here, he, he picks up some sayings that the Corinthians were using. So the Corinthians had some sayings. Like, I mean, what are the sayings that we have nowadays? You can do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt people. That's a classic one in the Australian context, isn't it? Well, the Corinthians had some sayings as well. Sayings that they were using to justify sexual immorality. You can see the first saying there in verse 12. You see it's, it's in, um, uh, I, what do you call those things? Um, inverted commas. Um, everything is permissible for me. Everything is permissible for me. Now, that might even be a saying that um, the Corinthians have picked up from Paul himself. Paul taught that Christians are set free from the Old Testament law. We're no longer under the regulations of the Old Testament. We, we even sang it before, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Jesus sets us free to live a life of love and service to himself. But the Corinthians, they've taken that saying and they're using it to justify sexual immorality. Everything's permissible? Great, I'll have sex with whoever I want. So, so what Paul does now... He quotes their saying, but then he kind of undermines it. He, he quotes it, but then he qualifies it. So he says, yeah, it's true. Everything's permissible. You're free, but not everything's good for you. Yes, everything's permissible, but the reality is some things are not freedom at all. Some things are slavery. And Paul's point is this. Sexual immorality is not good for you, and it's not freedom. It's slavery. Verse 12 Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. That's the first saying, everything's permissible for me. Uh, now there's another saying, Paul addresses another saying. To understand this one, though, I think we need a little bit of background in Greek philosophy. Uh, Corinth, of course, is in Greece. It, it's a Roman colony, but it's there in Greece, very influenced by Greek thinking, and Greek thinking, of course, is very influenced by the philosophy of people like Plato. And what you need to realise, 
to some extent this is, this is behind our thinking as well, but in, in Platonic thinking and people like Plato, there's a very big division between body and soul. So in their thinking, the, the essence of who we are is a soul. But our souls are kind of uh, imprisoned or locked into these bodies. And so the ultimate goal for a Greek philosopher is to be set free from the body, just be a soul engaged in philosophy all the time. But, but, but there's this big dichotomy between body and soul. So soul is good and eternal, but body is bad and temporary. See the dichotomy? Now that sent people off in two different ways of thinking, two directions of thinking. Some people, uh, and they're often called Stoics, they said this, uh, these bodies, they're, they're bad, wicked, temporary prisons, so, so give them nothing, deprive them, that, that's, real, that's real goodness, deprive your body, uh, physical stuff, food, sex, it, it's all bad for you, so it's off to the monastery, it's uh, off to the health farm, you know, go to a boot camp, punish that bad body, that kind of thing, all right? That's Stoic thinking. But other people went in a different direction. They're often called Epicureans. And Epicureans said this. They said, okay, this body, it's just a temporary shell. It's separate from our true selves, our souls. So, no matter what you do with your body, food, alcohol, sex, doesn't touch your soul. It's just physical stuff. So, go for it. Enjoy it while you can. It's that kind of Epicurean thinking, in a Christianized form, that is behind this next saying of the Corinthians. Now, you'll see in the NIV 1984 that they end the quotation marks after the word food. Can you see that? Almost certainly wrong. Um, and they've changed it now for the NIV 2011. They realise they got that wrong. Uh, the quotation marks should finish after the word both. So if you've got your got got on your telephone there and got the NIV 2011, you'll see they've shifted the quotation marks to the end of the word both. So verse 13, here's the saying that the Corinthians were using. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. See what it's saying? It's Christianized Epicureanism. It's only temporary. God's going to destroy it all. doesn't matter what you eat doesn't matter what will you do with your body. God doesn't care about your body. That's just going to be finished soon anyway. It's our souls that God's concerned about. I remember um, when I was in Florence in 2012, I took uh, my little daughter, who was quite little at the time, uh, took her shopping. And uh, we, we went to a clothing shop for little children. Honestly, like for very little children. Little dresses this big and so on. All these, uh, all these. And so in this clothing shop for little children... And over the sound system, they're blasting an English song, which hopefully nobody can understand, because this is, this is what the song said. You and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. <laughs> Clap my hands over my daughter's ears. <laughs> I didn't think that was a terribly appropriate song for a children's clothing store. And I tried in my very best Italian to point that out to the shopkeepers. But can you see it's the same kind of thinking? Sure, it's pagan and not Christian, but the thinking behind it is the same. Food, sex, it's all just physical. It's got no higher meaning. It's got no lasting consequences, so just go for it. The Corinthians were using this saying, God's going to destroy it all anyway, as a way to excuse their sexual immorality. But Paul says, no, you've got it wrong. He says, God does care 
about your body. God does care about your body. First, he says, our bodies are meant for Jesus, not sexual immorality. Not just our souls are meant for Jesus, our bodies are meant for Jesus. Continuing in verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And Paul then proves that God does care about our bodies, that our bodies do have eternal significance. He says, God raised Jesus from the dead bodily. Not just the soul, he raised Jesus from the dead. And and when God raises us, he's not just going to raise our souls, he's going to raise us from the dead, body and soul. Verse 14. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. God has eternal plans for our bodies. And even now, we're united to Jesus in spirit, but we're united to Jesus, body and soul. Totally inappropriate for us to unite ourselves sexually with prostitutes. Jesus cares what we do with our bodies. Body and soul, we are united to Jesus. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it said the two will become one flesh, but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. God does care what we do with our bodies. And sexual sin is the giving of our bodies in a way that is more more intimate and more central to ourselves than any other sin. It is not what God wants. Here and now, God dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. Not just in our souls, in us, body and soul. When Jesus died for us, he died to purchase us for God. Not just purchase our souls, purchase our bodies as well. So we should flee, Paul says, from sexual immorality. We should honour God, not just with our souls, but with our bodies. Sexual sin is serious because we belong to God, body and soul. Verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own, you were bought at a price, therefore honour God with your body. Okay, well can you see what's here then in this passage? Two big problems that have been reported to Paul that are happening in the Corinthian church, both, both related to Corinthian business practices. Uh, people are fighting about money and stuff and, and taking each other to court and people are involved in these in these guilds, in sexual and other immorality, drunkenness and idolatry and so on. Paul says, it's not appropriate. God cares what we do with our bodies. God cares about our business lives as well as our so-called spiritual lives. There is no place for wicked people in God's kingdom. Doesn't matter that you sit in church looking all pious and holy on a Sunday, if Monday to Friday 
God is not touching your business life and changing how you deal with people in that context. The whole reason Jesus died for us is to wash us clean from sin, to set us apart as God's holy people, not just one day a week, but every day of the week. And so in their businesses, first of all, the Corinthians should be honest. They shouldn't be cheating each other. They shouldn't be ripping each other off. And then if they are ripped off, well, before they go insisting on their rights and racing off to court, they should just, they should just wear it. If they can't manage to do that, well, they need to take it up with the other person themselves. If that doesn't fix things, they need to seek mediation or arbitration within the church. They shouldn't involve corrupt secular courts and bring the name of Jesus into disrepute. If they say Jesus has reconciled them and made them family, they need to live it. And then second, when it comes to the idolatry and drunkenness and sexual immorality involved in, in, in Corinthian business, the Corinthians need to have no part of it. Even if that means they go backwards in their business. Even if it means they lose their precious, precious money. God cares what they do with their bodies. They need to flee from sexual immorality. All right. Well, let's think about applying the passage to ourselves. Uh, two points of application. You can see there in your outline. First, litigation. And second, sexual immorality. If, I, if I'd heard Patrick before, I'd have gone with the two three-letter S words, sue and sex, but... I went with litigation and sexual immorality. So thinking about litigation. Now, I'm sorry if I sound too much like a lawyer here, but, but I do think we need to be a bit subtle as we deal with this because I, I don't think we should just apply this across the board. So, for example, uh, I don't think that this applies in cases of criminal law. In our country, if a person commits a crime, then the state prosecutes them. And as far as the Bible is concerned, that is the state's right. Romans chapter 13, if you're looking for a reference. So if someone commits a crime against you, even if they are a Christian, you should report it. You should let the state do what the state should do and prosecute the person. Christians should not be able to get away with crimes. And Christians should not cover up crimes. And churches shouldn't be sanctuaries for criminals reality is nowadays that we Presbyterians have all sorts of mandatory reporting duties when a crime is committed and in my judgment that is right and good we should be transparent this is not about criminal law and covering it up covering up Christian crime um, getting even more subtle I also think that there are certain instances of civil law that this doesn't apply to so for example as a church we hold public liability insurance so if you fall over and hurt yourself badly at church, you should be compensated. And if the insurance company refuses to come through, you should sue. Uh, that's not a matter of um, personal dispute. It's not, you know, you're angry with Jeff or something like that. No, no, no. That's just the way that our system works to justly compensate victims. Again, in my judgment, that's fine. That's just the system. That's not what this is about. But having made all those qualifications and still leaving the lawyer's room to have a job, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 should make a real difference to our relationships at church. 
including where those relationships become business relationships, including where we are going to each other as doctors or lawyers or dentists or plumbers or carpenters or whatever. What difference should it make? Well, first, as Christians, we should conduct our business in a way that is above reproach. We should not be cheating people. We should not be wronging people. If we borrow money, we should pay it back. If we offer a service, we should do the service properly. If we receive a service, we should pay what we owe when we owe it. Second, if you are wronged by another Christian, you should aim to overlook it. Better to be wronged than to fight. As Christians, we shouldn't be the sort of greedy people who always insist on our rights. As Christians, we should be genuinely reconciled to each other as a family. And that includes such important things as money. If the matter is too serious to overlook, then you need to take it up with the person who wronged you. Personally, try to sort it out. If that doesn't work, 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that we should seek some kind of Christian mediation or arbitration. And if that doesn't work, then the church should get involved. There should be church discipline for Christians who rip off their brothers or sisters. As Christians, we should be very, very reticent about taking other Christians to court over these sorts of civil matters. It can only ever demonstrate our failure as Christians and is a terrible, terrible witness to the world. Okay, that's litigation. Now let's think about sexual immorality. This one's pretty simple, I think. God cares about our bodies. God is opposed to any form of sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. And we need to flee from sexual immorality, like, um, like Joseph did from Potiphar's wife. We need to flee from sexual immorality. Now, lots of ways that we could talk about this, but uh, like with the Corinthians, uh, that means we need to think about our work practices. Apparently, uh, more than 60% of extramarital affairs happen through the workplace. So what I want to do just briefly is just give you a couple of scenarios as examples for you to think about. These scenarios might not apply directly to you, but hopefully you can, you can extrapolate for yourself. Let me just give you a couple of scenarios. Uh, if you're a person who travels for work, we need to be very careful. Uh, the temptations to pornography, to prostitution, to affairs are very real when you travel. And not just in an Asian business context. Uh, I'm aware of, of numerous people over the years who have succumbed. Uh, it is not the case that what happens on the road stays on the road. If you can't be godly when you travel, well, you need to get a job that doesn't involve travel. Simple as that. Flee from sexual immorality. Well, here's another scenario. Uh, if you're finding yourself attracted to a person at work... Well, you need to take steps to make sure it doesn't go anywhere. Tell your spouse. Tell a trusted Christian friend. Avoid being alone with the person. Avoid personal conversation. Keep it strictly business. Don't, don't flirt. Don't socialise. Don't go to Friday afternoon drinks, if that's what it takes. Skip the Christmas party, if that's what it takes. If it comes down to it, don't have that person as a client or patient anymore. Change departments if you need to distance yourself from the person. Even change jobs if you have to. Your job is not as important as your godliness. 
Your money is not important as your holiness. Do whatever it takes to flee from sexual immorality. Friends, we mustn't be deceived about this. The wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. That may have been what we were. But now we've been washed, sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We need to put wickedness behind us and live for Jesus. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your wonderful mercy to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that through him we've been washed and justified and sanctified. Thank you for working in us by your Holy Spirit to set us apart as your special people. Thank you for reconciling us to yourself and to each other. We pray that in the light of what you have done, that we would be different in the way we conduct ourselves. Help us to be genuinely like family to each other. Help us to conduct our business with integrity, with honesty, with diligence and help us to flee from sexual immorality. Thank you that you have an eternal destiny for us, body and soul. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.